So Jesus is coming home. Uh, in the book of Luke, Jesus starts out his ministry as he does in all the Gospels with sort of the season of preparation. So Jesus has gone out and he has been um, baptized by John the Baptist. And he's had this experience of having this confirmation of God calling him his beloved son. He's gone into the wilderness and been tempted by Satan, sort of preparing for his ministry. And so Jesus returns home in the book of Luke chapter 4, and he's ready to go. He is ready to start his public ministry. He's gone through all this sort of preparatory stage, and it is time to launch into his work. And so he does it by visiting mom and dad, by going back to his home church. And the scene that we get is, is very warm. It's very heartwarming. It's uh, something we can recognize. It's the scene of Jesus returning to all the people he knows and loves. And they're all very excited and proud of this boy that grew up in their town. Luke 4:14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went up to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. So you can just imagine the scene. You can imagine the faces kind of beaming with pride, right? All of these people who had known Jesus. All of these older ladies who had watched him in the front yard while Mary had errands to do, right? Who had taken care of him as a toddler. Just so excited by the way he can preach. You can see men that worked with him on the work site with him and Joseph as they worked as carpenters or masons uh, putting together a nearby building project. And you can just see some of those men puffing out their chest. I taught him how to use a hammer, right? And now here he is, this great preacher. There's some of the men in that room who say, I remember teaching him the name Isaiah. I remember teaching him who the prophet Isaiah was. Or even I remember teaching him how to read. And there's just this warmth that is coming upon him. And you can just imagine the excitement in that room. All of the love and the joy in their faces and in their hearts. And Jesus is going to mess it all up. He is going to ruin that moment irrevocably. Why? I think it's a lot like a family dinner, okay? Um, I've kind of talked about this scene before, but I think it resonates with us. Maybe you've gotten together with a lot of your family members and there's, you know, aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas, people from all over the place, different walks of life, different experiences, and everybody is having a good time. And then somewhere in the middle of family dinner, your stupid cousin reminds everyone why he's your stupid cousin, right? He decides to bring up some topic 
that you really shouldn't bring up at family dinner, right? Maybe it's politics, maybe it's parenting, maybe it's um, something going on in the news, or maybe it's that business deal between Uncle Sam and Uncle Joe that kind of went south 20 years ago and nobody wants to talk about it. Somehow this cousin brings something up. And immediately your response is duck and cover. I am not getting in the middle of this. I am not ruining this dinner. We're all enjoying each other. We had forgotten why we disliked each other. Why can't we just have a good time? And people start getting a little passive aggressive. The comments go back and forth. And then Uncle Herb does it. He says something just so offensive, just so overwhelmingly annoying that you've got to jump on it, right? You've got to step up and say, wait a minute. And the next thing you know, you are thrust into the middle of this conversation. It is family World War VIII, right? Like things are going off and you are now caught in the middle of this argument because it was just too much for you to take anymore. I think there's a little bit of this in Jesus. I think this is a little bit what happens as he sits in the synagogue. See, Jesus is getting ready to start his ministry. And I don't think that he opens to this passage in Isaiah by mistake. There's lots of stuff in this passage preachers love. He went to the synagogue as was his custom. And preachers go, oh, see, Jesus went to church. You should attend church too, right? This is like something that goes in the back of our mind. Jesus knows the scriptures. He spent so much time studying that when they hand him the scroll, he knows how to open up to the chapter and verse he wants, right? And he gets to this passage about freedom for the oppressed, for the, the poor to be cared for, for the blind to receive their sight. And Jesus, who is, um, he's developing his identity. This is something that we really don't know well. The Gospels don't tell us as much as we'd like. You know, when did Jesus realize that he was this Messiah? When did he start to perceive himself as the Son of God, as the one who had been sent to save the world? I don't think it happened when he was two. Right? I don't think he ran around as a toddler and was like, hey, mom, I'm going to save you from your sins one day. Like, that seems kind of bizarre. It seems that this is a role that he learned, something that he grew into. Luke tells us that Jesus learned as he grew, that he learned the, the scriptures. Hebrew writer says that he learned obedience as he grew up. So at some point, Jesus kind of gets this idea, I think that I'm the Messiah. And then we have this amazing confirmation event at his baptism where God speaks to him and says, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. And I think that was a moment where Jesus was like, it, it just clicked, right? Like, oh, okay, yeah, this is what I have to do. And so he's probably been stewing on this, right? I'm going to talk in the synagogue, but what am I going to say? If I'm going to be this public figure, what is my message going to be? And he decides that his message is going to be freedom for the oppressed, the prisoners set loose, the, the blind receiving their sight. Like he has all these beautiful ideas in his mind. And we can only guess what was being said in the synagogue when he was done. Based on what he does, I think he heard some things he didn't like. He probably heard a lot of self-righteousness. Yeah, one day we're going to be freed from all these evil people around us. I think he heard probably some nasty things about Gentiles. Yep, freedom of the oppressed. One day these dirty Gentiles are going to get kicked out of Jerusalem, right? Probably some of that nationalism, some of that anti-Roman rhetoric that we know is so common in the early church, or early church in first century Judaism. 
right? Jesus undoubtedly hears this impulse of we're good and holy and perfect and great people. And those Romans are evil, disgusting, you know, pork eating Gentiles. Let's get rid of them. That passage, it's time for us to get ours. And Jesus hears it and it makes him sick to his stomach because it is the opposite of what he's trying to preach. And so he immediately says, I can't take it any longer. And he ruins his beautiful family moment by saying this. Jesus said to them, surely you'll quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus has a couple of issues here, it seems. A couple of things that have kind of bothered him or disturbed him. The one is uh, the miracle thing. This is something we often forget. If you've heard stories about Jesus in Sunday school or whatever, we often talk about miracles as if this is what Jesus was all about. But there are several points in Scripture where Jesus makes clear that miracles are a means to the end of preaching. And when people want miracles with no preaching, he, he leaves town. That's not what he's in, in the business of. He's not going around healing people just to heal people. He's healing them so that they might listen to his word. Uh, there's a very clear passage about this in Mark where his disciple says, there's many people to be healed in this town. And Jesus says, I've not come for that. I've come to preach. And so that's part of Jesus' frustrations is he knows that everybody's there with a handout wanting to get healed, right? They all want to experience the miracles. They all want their back spasms to go away or whatever their issue is, you know, and that maybe that's why they're there. But the greater issue he has is that he's kind of aiming God's blessings towards a larger group of people. This is one of those times where if we don't know the Hebrew Bible, this passage gets a little obscure. We don't really understand it. Jesus tells stories of two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Yes, they knew each other. Yes, their names are very similar. Yes, I know that's confusing if you're trying to learn the Bible. But there's these two prophets right next to each other, Elijah and Elisha. And they both serve during times where Israel is very unfaithful to God. And so there are some sort of suffering that happens in their time. Uh, famines, droughts, things like that. And in both of their stories, there's a time when everyone in Israel is having a problem, and yet they go to a foreigner. Uh, he mentions Sidon and Zarephath. Uh, this over here is the main area of Israel. You can see Jerusalem down here. These would have been the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah during the time. And, you know, these are kind of where God's people live. And yet all the way up here in Sidon is where this one widow comes from who Elijah helps heal. He talks about Naaman the Syrian. It's not on this map, but Syria is up here if you know, you know those regions well. These foreigners, these non-Jews, are the people that God brought healing to in a time of great suffering. And what Jesus is saying is effectively this. I have come here to be a blessing and to change lives. But because of the unfaithfulness of the Jewish people, I'm going to end up with the Gentiles. Now that is offensive 
particularly if, in my reconstruction, I'm remotely correct, that they heard the passage as God's going to free us from the Gentiles, right? He's going to kick the Romans out. And here's Jesus going, you know, you think the Romans are a problem? The Romans are going to get miracles before you do, because that's the way God works when he sees as much unfaithfulness as he's seeing right now. That is a loaded message, okay? Uh, It's hard for us to realize this is disagreeing with theological precedent. It is disagreeing with their cultural values. To a degree, it's it's unpatriotic, right? I mean, um, I don't know if this is the best metaphor, but if I stood up and said, you know, Jesus is going to bless ISIS before he blesses the church, people would be like, Woo, excuse me? Like, that would be very concerning. But this is the kind of thing that Jesus is getting at. Your enemies, the people that you think have nothing to do with God, are going to receive a blessing before you do because of the unfaithfulness of God's people. Jesus is preaching what we often refer to as the upside-down kingdom. Jesus' ministry is often about uh, inverting what people expect. You expect me to care for the rich, I'm going to care for the poor. Uh, Mary Uh, sees all of this coming in her beautiful song when she gets pregnant with Jesus. And she talks about how the the rich will be torn down and the poor will be lifted up. There's this idea that the people, uh, this is part of our theme of the feast, right? The people invited to God's banquet will not show up and all the people in the streets and the alleys will be brought in and the unexpected crowd who will feast with God. Jesus preaches this over and over and over again. The people who will respond are not the people who you expect to respond. My kingdom is bigger and more welcoming and more inclusive than you could guess. And that causes them to be angry. The story goes on and they try to kill Jesus. And he's saved through some sort of cool superpower, miraculous walking through the crowd. I can't explain it to you kind of thing. But something like that happens. They're about to push him off a cliff. And he makes his way through the crowd and escapes. All because he dared to preach that God loves Gentiles too. So why are we talking about this? Like I said, it's in between sermon series, so I talk about things that apply to me. So why this passage today, right? Um, so I'm going to explain an experience I'm having, and I hope it resonates with you some. Uh, I feel like we're living in a time of some cultural upheaval. Seems like there's just a lot of anger and frustration and polarization in the world around us. And here's what I find. The way I feel about certain issues. um, I find the people that raised me don't agree with me. And it kind of freaks me out. Do you ever look at Facebook and see like one of your Sunday school teachers when you were a kid or maybe even one of your blood relatives And they share an opinion that kind of horrifies you, right? I mean, there are times, I'll just be honest, where I'm like, the church I grew up in was the most like racist, misogynistic, evil, terrible place ever, right? Like I just feel that way because I hear all these comments from people that I remember as sweet Sunday school teachers about, you know, that are just, I wouldn't even repeat here because they're offensive, and I look around the room and I like, I'm like, where did I come from? Am I a good, is it possible that I'm a good person if I come from this background? Right? Like, I don't know. Hopefully you guys are feeling this way and I'm not just a bad person. Like, this is something that we experience, right? 
that we just sometimes see people that we know and love and who raised us and they're saying things that are just patently offensive and we don't know what to do with it. Because I love those people. That, that woman used to literally wipe my butt, but she's not very kind, right? Facebook has ruined this. In the old days, I would be thousands of miles away from them and I'd never see this stuff and I'd be happy with them and have a fond, beautiful memory from kindergarten instead of these issues. But we've got it now, so we know what everybody thinks, right? And so I think we have this cultural struggle, whoever you are, that you probably think some different things than the people who raised you. And you probably, if you're old enough, find that your kids think some different weird things too. And you're trying to make sense of, are we even in this together? Is this the same world? What's going on here? Now, let me admit that there is an unfair thing I'm doing here. It is very easy to cast myself in the role of Jesus, correct? Right, where I am this open-minded, wonderful teacher of men who is coming out with these great ideas and it's all these old stodgy people who listened, you know, who, were, who raised me that don't get it, right? And I, I don't want to do that. But I do want us to see that these tensions and these difficulties are real for Jesus too. And there's a few things that I try to take out of this to help me process my world and my life. Uh, one of the things is that you're just always going to have generational clashes, right? You're just always, people are just going to be this way. That Jesus thought different stuff than the people that raised him. And undoubtedly, and we know from church history, a generation or two down the road, there's going to be people who are going to have issues with even things that Jesus and Paul said, right? Generational clashes happen. They are part of the natural cycle of life, and we are not experiencing anything new. Our parents, who we might be frustrated with, had frustrations with their parents, who had frustrations with their parents. This just happens. And so some of this is, let's not overreact, right? Of course, you and your grandpa think a little bit differently about politics, because that happens to everyone and their grandpa, right? If there was no change at all, that would actually be a little disconcerting. I think the second thing we have to realize is... Um, Theology does necessarily move and shift and grow. Now, I'm not trying to say that we cease going to the scriptures. There's not universal truths or anything like that. I believe there are things that never change. But I also think that every person has to do theology within a particular context. That sounded really much nerdier and professorial than I wanted it to. Um, we all think about God and about the world around us within the context we live in and within our experiences. And those experiences change us. I have these pictures up here because that necessarily happens when you have a missionary religion, a religion that goes into all the world, right? It's going to feel different in China than it does in Africa, than it does in Costa Rica, than it should in the United States, right? Just we should deal with things in different ways because we have different problems, different challenges. And we all accept this to some degree. This is why Paul tells Philemon, hey, you should go back to your slave master and live with him. And why and the antebellum American people said, no, the Bible is against slavery, right? It's because we learn and we grow and we adapt scriptures to our context. All that to say, theology is going to change and we're going to have new problems, right? Um, Jesus had no opinions on the sexual ethics of in vitro fertilization, right? Why did Jesus have no opinion on that? Because it didn't exist when Jesus was alive, right? So things are going to shift and things are going to change. And so we should just expect that. 
And that does two things. It gives us a little grace for people who are behind us because they answered different questions and had different problems than the problems that we have. And it also should give us some humility that we have different questions and different problems than our parents did. And maybe some of what we're doing is just responding to the world that we live in. The third thing, though, um, that we can't get off the hook is Jesus loves everybody. And Jesus believes in a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-whatever church. That Jesus' vision is clearly upset here by the... Um, by just the tunnel vision of the people he's with about God saving the Jews alone. And Jesus is starting to get ready for this incredible expansion that will include the whole world. And so there's no getting around that if you are getting into a fight with someone and you are saying, you know, Jesus loves everybody and their answer is, yeah, but you're probably doing well to be with Jesus, right? If our response to Jesus loves everyone is, well, but slow down. Jesus clearly wants his kingdom to be all-encompassing so that everyone can know his goodness and his love. Uh, the final thing is you're, we're going to get old too. Okay, so a lot of our church members here are like, what, 25 to 35, maybe even a little younger. And it's really easy to perceive yourself. We're, we're the dominant people now. I, I was shocked. I was listening to a radio station I liked the other day. It's hits of 90s, 2000s, and today. And the description on my radio is adult hits. When did the 90s become adult hits, right? But it's happening. Uh, I notice now every time that I walk into a movie theater, or every time I walk into a restaurant or something, they're playing music that I like. This is awesome. How is this happening? It always used to be old people music. Oh, okay, that's what's happening right? We're, um, for many of us, now, excuse me, some of you that are a little older, I'm sorry if this doesn't apply as well to you, but for many of us, we're starting to come to a place, I mean, millennials are soon going to be the largest generation alive, okay? And we are the adults. We're the ones in the 30s. We're going to be the ones with the most voting power, actually. Like, these things are bizarre and weird. And as those things change, um, one day our kids are going to look at us and be just as frustrated with us right? Like, dad, I can't believe you guys did. And they'll be like, shut up, Abigail, right? Like, there's just, you know, like, there's going to be this thing where they're going to criticize us for what we've done. And having a little bit of humility in that, I guess, is important. Um, in this story, we see a real tension that there are times where people will say things and have beliefs that we just cannot sit down and not mention to talk back, Right? It was not the right thing for Jesus to do, to say, eh, you know what, forget it, they're fine, I shouldn't bring it up. Jesus says, no, I want you to understand the message that I'm really preaching. And it's really far more radical and inclusive than you're comfortable with. And it's not a bad thing for Jesus to teach that. But on the same hand, um, we also have to understand that that's going to happen a lot. And it happened in the first century, it's happening today, and there just has to be grace for people before us and grace for us and kind of understanding. Um, I struggle lately to have grace with certain people, particularly people, like I said, from my childhood and people who raised me, people who I thought taught me opposite values of what I hear them saying. And learning to have the grace to love them and accept them and honor the things they've done in my life, even when they're frustrating me, is honestly really hard. 
but I think it's something we've got to do. Uh, we don't need any more situations where people are pushing people off cliffs, like in Jesus' spot, right? Let's stop short of the cliff pushing and learn how to get along and learn that the church is diverse. And part of it being diverse is there's p- people have different perspectives and different backgrounds. I am starting to ramble at this point. So um, we do a Q&A at the end of, oh, there's Jesus. Uh, the end of all of our sermons, we do a Q&A. Um, if you had any questions about the sermon, about the passage, backgrounds of the passage, uh, why we applied it the way we did, whatever, uh, please ask them. Yeah. It's very, that's an interesting passage. So, I mean, there's obviously options. One is that by 13 or so at this age, he's kind of fully comprehending who he is. Um, The other option is that he has heard this theme that God is our father. And so in the same way that any Christian would pray Father God, he conceives God as his father just because he's a Jew. And so when he says my father's house, it's not like messianic identity as much as it's just um, this concept of the fatherhood of God amongst his people. So that, that's another option. The other option is somewhere in between where he's already starting to feel different and starting to realize that he's something different. And it isn't full-blown sort of messianism, but it is him starting to develop a theme. Uh, the thing that I, I do want to be cautious about as far, as far as maybe he knew more than we would even know is that while I say, you know, we all talk about God as Father God, part of the reason we do that is because the fatherhood of God is a theological theme of Jesus that is far more prevalent in the teachings of Jesus than it is the Judaism of his age. So it's possible that that is a sign that he's starting to come into that role. Yeah, uh, so there's two times in Luke where, where Luke says that he grew in knowledge and in favor with God and favor with man. Um, so we have these traditional orthodox statements about being fully God and fully human. But we also know that fully God doesn't mean having the full knowledge of God because if he did, there's no way he could have learned, right? And so that's a particularly thorny theological issue. Um, just my personal feelings on these things, I always default to scripture instead of defaulting to the theological statements of another generation beyond it. And so, yeah, I believe God, he was fully God and fully human, but I think definitely there were things he had to learn. And to me, I focus more on the learning than the fully God part because um, I just want to focus on the scriptural aspect. Uh, And Hebrews, again, also talks about him learning obedience. Uh, There's this really weird phrase in Hebrews that Jesus was perfected by the things he experienced. What does that mean? Right? Like some of us, we were just kind of taught like this holy child that was perfect came down from heaven. How could he become perfect by what he experienced? And it's just an interesting thing for us to wrestle with. Uh, To some degree. So certainly the Romans... Uh, oh, man, I could get myself in real trouble here. Maybe I shouldn't use this example. Certainly there was a experience where you had, you had Jewish terrorists, right, okay. called zealots, who would go to Roman camps and slit Roman soldiers' throats at night. So you did have Jewish terrorism against Rome. Now, what Rome did in response, we wouldn't technically call terrorism. We would call military action, right? It was the kind of thing we see in other places in the world now where – Jewish terrorists would kill a couple of Romans, and then the Romans would kill 150 Jews in response. 
And so, yes, there is violence back and forth between the Romans and the Jews in Palestine. It was a constant hotbed of re revolution. So, what's that? No, I, hopefully it's not a ter yeah, I, I mean, there is violence. There was real violence and enmity. And there was also just the general thing of, like, paying taxes and being mistreated and soldiers. Um, things like we got upset about in the American Revolution, about, like, quartering, right? Like, we had to keep soldiers in your home. A Roman could walk into your – a soldier could walk into your house and say, I'm staying here. And you go, yes, sir, you know, so. Yeah, yeah I think that phrase generally means I, I don't want to – actively fight against you anymore right so uh it's it's yeah it's, it's really tricky and you know people in the bible don't always get along there's examples where paul had disagreements with folks and they finally just split ways and they made up later on but like uh, john mark is the example john mark and paul have some fights and at one point paul's just like dude i can't do this anymore you're a pain in the neck i can't have you around take a hike you know and so sometimes i mean it's not perfect So I don't have any expert opinion on this. I think the biggest thing is we, we look at burning bridges. Like at the point where your approach destroys a relationship is probably the point where it's, it's not a great idea, right? Like when you no longer have the ability to, and also, okay, so I'm gonna do this quickly, but there's, um, there's this idea that when you have a prophetic tone of voice, when you have something that speaks against injustice, that you have to also be able to walk someone through how to solve that. The way it was taught to me is if you preach prophetically, you cannot cut someone open for surgery without sewing them back up, right? And so um, you just have to be responsible that if you're going to cut something open, you got to sew it back up, uh, particularly if it's a friend or a family member or somebody that you know, you know?